Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. Good afternoon, and welcome to WADA, ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to the 46th episode of ADA Live. My name is William Myhill. I am the Director of Legal Research and Writing for the Burton Blatt Institute. Our topic for today's show is the history of disability, lessons from the past. As a reminder, ADA Live listening audience, If you have questions about the history of disability, please submit them at any time on our online forum at adalive.org. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Larry Logue, Senior Fellow at the Burton Blood Institute. Larry Logue comes to BBI from Mississippi College, where he was Professor of History and Political Science. Since winning the Francis and Emily Chipman Best First Book Award, for A Sermon in the Desert, Belief and Behavior in Early St. George, Utah. Dr. Logue has turned his interest to the experiences of soldiers and veterans of the Civil War. His books include Race, Ethnicity, and Disability, Veterans and Benefits in Post-Civil War America, and To Appomattox and Beyond, The Civil War, Soldier in War and Peace, and The Civil War Soldier, a Historical Reader, and also The Civil War Veteran, a Historical Reader. At BBI, Dr. Logue collaborates with Dr. Blank, exploring the psychological traumas suffered by Union Army veterans. This investigation will culminate in Civil War veterans' psychological illness and suicide, lessons from the past. A new monograph in Cambridge's Disability Law and Policy series. Larry, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. The passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, has often been called a turning point in the history of people with disabilities. In honor of the ADA anniversary, which is July 26, in this episode we are looking at significant turning points in the history of disability in America. First question for you is, why is it important in the 21st century to study disability in the past? I might best start with a short answer, which borrows from a Michael Crichton novel. There, a a character says, if you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You're a leaf that doesn't know it's part of a tree. That's kind of a blunt assessment, but it makes a useful point about the cost of not studying the past. A more positive way of looking at your question is to think about the Latin roots of the verb to comprehend. Those roots mean to grasp together. And why that's useful is that history lets you grasp things together, to see the forest and the trees, to see the big picture and the details of human actions. And what's equally important is that history lets us see the range of possibilities of what people are capable of, for better or for worse, for good or for ill. And what's more, history offers responses when somebody says, 
why don't we do this? Why don't we try that? And maybe we can say it's been done before. Now, that's just an overview. And I'll have more details uh, on the same question and as we deal with more questions. Well, thank you. So the passage of the ADA has been called a turning point in the history of people with disabilities. Can history's big picture show other turning points? Well, if history was driven only by dramatic events like the ADA, it would be a whole lot easier to explain. It would be a whole lot neater. But turning points like that, like the ADA, like the Battle of Midway in World War II, maybe like the Emancipation Proclamation in the Civil War, are pretty rare. What's more common is what we might call turning periods. They're not sudden and they're not singular. They're actually collections of developments that come together and sweep through periods of years and produce big changes. Let me give you some particulars on one such period, and that's the the time around the turn of the 20th century, often known as the Progressive Era. There, there were a bunch of developments that came together, and they include a surge of faith in science and expertise in people's ability to identify problems and solve them, a dramatic growth of industrial production, and especially progressive obsession with efficiency and productivity in the industrial process. And finally, there was a surge of immigration to the United States by people in numbers who had never been seen and from places that hadn't been seen much either, like nations of, especially nations of Southern and Eastern Europe. The big changes that these developments produced for people with disabilities were these. For new professions, that is, ones that had been inspired by progressives' fascination with science and expertise, people with disabilities represented an opportunity. For just about everybody else, they represented a threat. And so I'll say more about the threat first. The main effect of this perceived threat was that governments imposed policies of discrimination at all levels. Cities, for example, passed ugly laws. These prohibited people with visible disabilities from being seen in public spaces. States passed laws that prohibited people with disabilities from marrying. Other laws authorized forced sterilization of women with disabilities. And the federal government got into the act, too. They adopted a policy that turned away immigrants at the ports of entry if they had any sort of alleged defect, which could include things like curvature of spine, eye disease, short stature, and a whole long other list. Professionals, on the other hand, took a different view. They could reduce the threat posed by disabilities. One way they could do that applied to people with mental illness. Reformers persuaded states to replace smaller asylums that had confined people for short periods with large custodial hospitals, the goal being to remove chronically mentally ill people from society. Another way they they could reduce the threat was to deal with the threat allegedly posed by deaf people. Schools brought in professional educators who taught lip reading and speaking aloud instead of sign language. The goal here was to make deaf people fit in better. Progressives also believed that they could reduce dependency on the part of people with all kinds of physical disabilities. Reformers and medical professionals went on a campaign of rehabilitation, first for veterans, then for civilians, 
federal and state governments provided money for employment training, for prosthetics, for job placement, and for a little preaching about the value of work. The idea here was to create economic productivity from people with disabilities. All these changes together were part of the full takeover by the medical model, which, as I'm sure you know, means that disability was seen as a pathology that needs to be treated. It means more basically that disability was a condition of the individual, not society. And if I had my own druthers, I might even call it the individual model because that, that gets to the heart of what was seen as the nature of disability. And all this is what I mean by a turning period. Big changes happened, but over years rather than a single event. Thank you. It's interesting to me how you, in describing the progressive era, mixed in um, issues of threat as well as some of the more positive movements regarding helping individuals with disabilities perhaps get into the workforce. Uh, I'm just wondering on a side um, what you might say about the eugenics era, which you did discuss but didn't actually use in, in that actual term. Yeah, the eugenics movement was, was one of the larger things that that uh, progressive embraced because they were really concerned about the, the purity of the race, the purity of the white Anglo-Saxon race. And so the sterilization laws, the marriage laws in particular, were some of the more, I don't know, more, more noticeable uh, examples of what the eugenics movement produced. And so it, it was another part of the progressive era. I mean, you, we could do courses and books and have been done on that era, and those are some of the highlights. Well, thank you. So thinking of these turning periods, should the disability rights movement of the 1970s and 1980s be considered a turning period? They certainly can. The advocacy and the protests of those years certainly did shake the foundation of the medical model for, at last. They convinced people in power that society creates disability, and society can tear it down. And that's true enough in, in its outlines, but historians have recently questioned the narrative that's usually attached to this movement. The standard narrative goes kind of like this, that prior to the 1970s, activism certainly existed, but it was fragmented. It consisted of mostly separate groups representing separate disabilities, and they couldn't get much done because of that. But then, according to the standard narrative, the civil rights and the women's movement came to the rescue. They inspired disability activists to put aside their differences, and the disability activists copied the tactics of these other movements and got their victory. The problem with all this is it gives a misleading picture of activism for disability rights. For one thing, it overlooks the pioneering use of activist tactics such as, uh, and in particular, a group of, with physical disabilities that staged sit-in uh, sit to protest job discrimination in 1935, long before such movements became, such tactics became popular. For another thing, the standard narrative overlooks a couple of other realities. One is the existence of groups like the American Federation of the Physically Handicapped, which was organized in 1940 and which demanded the right to employment for all people with disabilities. Another reality is divisions in other civil rights movements. In African-American rights, there was a deep division between those who fostered 
favored legal strategies such as the NAACP versus those who favored direct action such as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In the women's movement, there were those who favored public advocacies such as the National Organization for Women versus those who favored private consciousness raising. If we expand the narrative by recognizing these realities, we make clear that there was a prolonged struggle, actually, for rights for multiple groups in America, African Americans, women, and people with disabilities. And expanding the narrative in that way suggests that what happened was that actually the audience changed in the last third of the 20th century. Finally, there was a critical mass of Americans who were willing to see stigmas of race, gender, and disability for what they are. They're substitutes for rational thought. So the last third of the 20th, 20th century was really a time of big changes, just like the accepted wisdom says, but the historical approach enriches the narrative and does justice to the prolonged struggle for rights. Thank you, Larry. ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about the history of disability, please submit it at any time on our online forum at adalive.org. Now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. The Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, also known as BBI, reaches around the globe in its efforts to advance the civic, economic, and social involvement of people with disabilities. BBI builds on the legacy of Burton Blatt, former dean of Syracuse University School of Education and a pioneering disability rights scholar. Burton Blatt was a pioneer in humanizing services for people with disabilities. As an advocate of mainstreaming people with disabilities, he helped initiate community living programs and family support services to better the lives of people with disabilities. BBI has offices in Syracuse, Washington, D.C., and Atlanta. To learn more about the Burton Blatt Institute, visit their website at bbi.syr.edu. Welcome back to our show. We're talking with Larry Logue, Senior Fellow at the Burton Blatt Institute. Larry, the research you've done with Peter Blank focuses on Civil War veterans. Where do they fit in the themes you've discussed? Peter and I have looked at several topics over our, our time together. One is the administration of the federal government's pension system for union veterans. Another is the experience of veterans themselves in navigating that pension system. And our most recent investigations have been the experience of veterans with psychological aftereffects of the Civil War. Our main finding is that veterans have long been supposed to be outside of the perception of disability, but that they couldn't escape the larger forces affecting people who had disabilities. What I mean is that uh, Congress, relying on various motives from sympathy to political pandering, tried in the 19th century initially to reverse the meaning of disability from a perceived defect to be corrected under the medical model to a symbol of sacrifice to be rewarded with income support after the Civil War. The overall numbers suggest that there was success in achieving this goal. At the turn of the century, more than 300,000 Union veterans were on pension rolls, receiving income support for award-related disabilities. But those numbers conceal unequal treatment. 
African-American faith vets were less likely to be approved for pensions than whites, even when they had the same conditions. And as concern about the racial purity of America that I mentioned a minute ago increased in the late 19th century. Immigrants and people from Southern and Eastern Europe in particular were also less likely than Native whites to be approved. So that there were clear limits to veterans' immunities from 19th century attitudes. And there's another way that Civil War veterans weren't a privileged class, and that's the subject of our forthcoming book, Some veterans suffered sleeplessness, anger, flashbacks, and other symptoms caused by brain injuries, experience as prisoners of war, traumas of the battlefield. And psychological distress like this is hard to quantify for the 19th century, but from censuses and pension records, it appears as though Union veterans experienced more mental illness than civilians did. Another indicator of the war's after effects is not so hard to measure. We also found numerous Civil War veterans who died by suicide. They were driven by causes such as wounds that wouldn't heal, diseases that wouldn't go away, and traumatic memories that wouldn't stop. All these forces drove large numbers of Union veterans to suicide. Indeed, they seemed to commit suicide at higher rates than civilian men did then, and at a higher rate than veterans do now at a time that's perceived as a major crisis. So maybe policymakers did reverse the meaning of disability as a symbol, but there was less success in changing disability as an experience for veterans themselves. Did veterans with disabilities from later wars have similar experiences? Part of what happened in the 20th century after the Civil War was a reaction against policies for Civil War veterans. Progressives knew that the government had compensated Civil War veterans for lost earning power and had offered soldiers' homes or residential care. But progressive reformers believed that those things, those policies, encouraged idleness and dependency. And those, those results were deeply offensive to progressives' commitment to efficiency and productivity. So reformers saw the coming of a new war in the 19-teens as a chance to start over and to get it right. So the federal government threw its weight behind the philosophy of repairing disability through rehabilitation. This time, pensions for World War I veterans were tied to participation in a federal rehabilitation program. The program wasn't without serious problems. There were long delays in getting into programs, There was discrimination against African Americans. There was a focus on manual labor, no matter what the skills that a veteran had. But that big change was here to stay. After subsequent wars, rehabilitation remained the top priority. There was another big change out of World War War I and later wars, which is that veterans with disabilities began to form their own organizations. Groups like the Disabled American Veterans formed in 1920 and the Blinded Veterans Association formed in 1945 campaigned for government funding for and programs for veterans. They helped veterans applying for government aid, and they argued against programs that treated veterans and civilians the same. <clears throat> that split between veterans and civilians has caught the attention of some commentators, and they argue that veteran self-promotion held back civilians' attempt to attain their own rights. 
Maybe that happened. But this is assumed rather than investigated. We don't know how much effect veterans' example had on civilians. And we don't know the effect of veterans' efforts to change minds of employers and the public and politicians about disability as a societal problem, not an individual one. So there were big changes for veterans, and they beget big changes for us. Big questions for us, actually. Thank you. So what unanswered questions would you like to see explored by historians of disability? Well, we could start by following up on that last point. Maybe we need more research on the relationship between veterans' rights campaigns and the larger disability rights movements. As I suggested, there's lots of research already on veterans' role in solidifying the medical model, especially through rehabilitation. And there's lots of research on them setting themselves apart from civilians. But is there evidence that veterans' activism might have actually inspired civilians? There's room here, I think, for investigation, especially since a, a recent book that points out that the American Federation for the Physically Handicapped was aware of the importance of World War II veterans to their own cause. Another item on my wish list would have to do with the meaning of disability. We know that 19th century censuses to collected information on various kinds of disability, as reported by household heads and other informants. There's lots of problems with the results of in those censuses. They're inaccurate, they're often incomplete, but the problems can actually be turned into usefulness. What could be done is that we could find evidence of an individual's disability in some other source, like a newspaper report of an accident, and then to see whether his or her disability was recorded in the next census. The point would be to see whether objective and subjective definitions of disability differed and to see whether they differed by race or gender or ethnic background. All this could give an idea of various meanings of disability. So I guess I'm coming back to my initial point that the history of disability has come a long way, but by grasping things together, there's still a long way to go. Larry, thank you so much for being with us today. This episode and all previous ADA episodes are available on our website at adalive.org. The episodes are archived in a variety of formats, including streamed audio from our website, accessible transcripts of audio, and also are available to download as podcasts to listen at your convenience from your mobile device. Just select the download podcast from our homepage and all episodes will be downloaded to your iTunes or preferred podcast manager. I want to thank you for our ADA Live listening audience for listening today. We are thankful for your great support and listening in the series for this ADA Live broadcast. Reminder, you can submit any questions on any of these topics by going to adalive.org. Join us August 2nd for our next episode of ADA Live we will be talking with Christy Dunaway about emergency services, what to do before, during, and after. If you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, contact your center at 1-800-949-4232. And remember, all calls are free and they're confidential. 
Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call 1-800-949-4232 for answers to your ADA questions.